the original Hellboy landed in 2004, the cinematic landscape in terms of comic book movies was still a far cry from its current state, and certainly nobody was expecting anything from Del Toro making another comic book movie, let alone one based on a cult comic by Mike Magnolia. Despite the fact it was a title as well that encapsulated old things Del Toro loved, such as darkness, clockwork monsters, general monsters, and the occult, it seemed like an absolute perfect title for Del Toro to adapt, especially coming off hot off the success of Blade 2. Here, the title followed a stone-fisted demon who, along with his fellow agents of the BPRD, the Bureau of Paranormal Research and Development, bump back against the agents of the occult and other monsters which lurk in the dark. Returning with a sequel in 2008, Del Toro's love for the character was very clear, and especially as he was willing to use the buzz surrounding his critically adored Hans Labyrinth to get the sequel greenlit. And unfortunately, it would also be a film which would sadly leave us with one of cinema's most frustrating unfinished trilogies. I'm Elwood. I'm Kim. And you're listening to Movies and Tea. Let's take it to the booth. Once again to the uh, to everyone, uh, you are of course listening to Moves and Tea, and uh, tonight it gives me a great pleasure to welcome another guest to join us here in the booth. And tonight we're joined by the man who's not only got a mind for comic book movies but a voice for jazz radio. And it of course gives me great pleasure to welcome to the show from Flight Tights and Movie Nights, uh, the one and only Bubba Wheat. First, welcome to the show. It's uh, been a while since we recorded together, and certainly when. I was thinking of people to talk about comic book movies. It was sort of like your name was really sort of top of the pile. So it's great that you're able to uh, come and join us this evening. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. It's, uh, I'm glad that uh, at least for a few people, I'm at the the top of that that kind of list because that's kind of my niche. I've got to say, I mean, you've how I mean, how many years now have you been just sort of watching every comic book movie ever made it seems uh i just passed uh my seven years uh blogging for my site and i mean what is the lasting appeal of comic book movies i mean it's it's always difficult if you like pick just one sort of niche genre to sort of focus all your writing on so what's been the appeal to write about comic book movies for seven years now well i i think because there's there's really so much variety and there's so many different ones that I've never heard of. And it's just been great for me to dig into all, all these obscure low budget ones because there, there's a wealth of um, like, there's some real diamonds in the rough. I mean, there, there's a lot of rough and there's a lot of really bad ones out there, but there are every once in a while, I find one that just really fascinates me and, 
half the time it's like uh it's one of those movies where if you told somebody that it was based on a comic book they would they would be highly surprised I think at the moment we're sort of entering into this period, uh, the same with like Star Wars movies, where we seem to be facing this sort of era of oversaturation because obviously the product's now part of the Disney uh, corporation. So do you feel that we're now sort of reaching that point where people are sort of like wanting a bit of a break from comic book movies? Or do you think that there's still the potential really for them to, to keep going at the rate that they are at the moment? Honestly, I, I think we're far from oversaturation because whenever i mean i I think people like to say that just because they're dominating the box office but whenever you're looking at like whenever you really look at the numbers uh i would say that every year even counting some of the low budget ones there's only like 20 to 30 of these movies a year but if you compare that to say like the number of uh, biopics uh, and you're going to get a similar number of biopics there's going to be like 20 to 30 biopics that come out every year and nobody's saying there was way too many biopics there's, there's an <laughs> oversaturation of these biopics or even like screwball comedies uh, but it's just the fact that you know like last year I think like seven of the top ten grossing movies were superhero movies so the, they're they're the ones that everyone's seen. So it's like in that way, it, it just feels like they're everywhere. But it's just because everybody wants to see them right now. And and I get the feeling that it's kind of a similar, I get the feeling it's going to take a similar arc as like, you know, the, the movie Westerns or like the movie musicals. And, and I'm kind of curious what, uh, I haven't done any digging into that yet, but I'm kind of curious at, at what time span that, that range because I think that was like a good 20, 30 year time span. And right now we're, uh, I mean, if as far as saturation goes, I would say we're only about uh, not even 10 years in. Because uh, I think, you know, they, they started picking up steam with in 2000 with X-Men, but I don't think they really kind of hit the ground running until, you know, um, closer to 2010. If not yeah. like 2012, when Avengers came out. Yeah. And, I mean, Kim, feel free to jump in here as well. And we've obviously just saw this week, obviously, Black Panther is now currently in the running to be the first Oscar. Is it is the first Oscar-nominated superhero movie? I know you've obviously argued this oh. already on your Facebook page <laughs> for weeks. So. I would say traditional superhero movie. Yeah. Because, you know, there, there's also Birdman, which... Yeah. Most people wouldn't call that a traditional superhero movie, but it does have a, a lot of superhero culture mixed into it. Okay. And, I mean, obviously the fact that Black Panther, first off, first off he's like the first black superhero. And a lot of people are saying that the reason Black Panther is obviously getting this sort of Oscar buzz, and especially over Civil over um, Avengers Infinity War, is the fact that obviously because of the Oscars obviously being criticised for being so whitewashed in recent years, um, that this is, the Oscars are really at the Academy trying to do their bit to repair their image by nominating this all-black superhero movie. So, I mean, do we feel that Black Panther was deserving of getting the Oscar nomination? Um, I mean, certainly we've we've mentioned many times in the past about movies which deserve the Oscar nomination, but 
never received it. So films like Jaws, because they were considered summer blockbusters, so they were always overlooked by the Academy and traded out in favour of sort of more Oscar bait pictures. Um, so now we obviously have a summer blockbuster movie that's picking up a nomination, but is it more of a political nomination than an actual nomination it deserved? I don't, I don't, I don't think that it would be. I, I guess it is a little political. Like I've thought about it that way, but I, I don't know because I haven't seen Black Panther yet. Like it's kind of the next movie on my list I want to see. But okay. um, yeah, I started it, but I just didn't have that time to watch it, so I turned it off. Um, so but yeah, no, I. I don't know. I feel like the Academy is trying to repair its image with a lot of nominations now, but I don't, I don't, I can't say if it's really deserving because I try to, I don't watch a lot of um, Oscar bait, as you would say, um, mostly because they're just way too dramatic for what I like to watch now. So. Okay. And Bobby, what, I mean, what, what's your sort of opinion with uh, Black Panther picking up this nomination? Well, I, I think it's really great because, you know, Black Panther, especially whenever you compare it to a lot of the other MCU movies, mm-hmm. they they all kind of fit in more or less into the same mold. I mean, they're they do kind of uh, cross over slightly into different genres, <clears throat> like with, um, you know, Winter Soldier was more like like a, a spy movie and, uh, you know, Bragnarok is heavy on the comedy Mm -hmm. and and black panther really does have like this um this more dramatic core to it uh and and it's slightly and like the mcu the traditional mcu action comedy elements are a smaller part compared to this more you know cultural and heritage uh, kind of family drama that's that's going on and and there's a lot of deeper themes in in it that we don't tend to see in a lot of mcu movies i, I think infinity war is great but it, it still generally fits into the the superhero mold it, it's kind of the pinnacle of the superhero mold yeah but it, it's still the superhero mold and and it doesn't really break any boundaries there where Black Panther, I, I think, is really the first movie since The Dark Knight, which really feels like, you know, as close to a cinematic masterpiece as you can get whenever you're talking about, you know, the traditional superhero cinema. Mm. I've, I mean, I struggled with Black Panther. I mean, yes, I enjoyed the Afrofuturistic vibe that it has, and certainly the fact that it features so strong, many sort of strong independent female characters, I really appreciate those elements to it. But at the same time, I just found myself very bored with it. Where if I look at Marvel Infinity War, and it's just where I'm seeing this massive spectacle and all these moving parts being brought together. I mean, you've got numerous different themes because they're all coming from different sort of chapters in the MCU universe. So we've got like the magic and the space sort of chapters meeting with the more grounded chapters of like Iron Man and Captain America. And somehow all these different pieces, I mean, there's there's multiple characters, we're up to like 50 odd characters that are all having to find t- time and space to be established and slotted into this plot. Um, yes, the ending, I think, I think it negates um, a lot of the issues that the sequel may have by, you know, pretty much eliminating 50% of that cast. Um, but I just, I just found myself enjoying it a lot more than I did with Black Panther. Black Panther, I just thought, oh, it's, while it's obviously got these different sort of themes to it, it's just basically another 
origin story um, as of sorts. Um, just obviously set in a Afrofuturistic world, which I think was the only sort of angle they really had going for it that made it sort of more than just being another run-of-the-mill uh, superhero movie. So for myself, it, it didn't really do anything for me, but I know it's only got its fans. I know uh, DJ Vantone, who was on our previous episodes, was a really big fan of it and spoke very highly of it. And as for Winter Soldier, I felt that was always... That should have been the Black Widow movie. It shouldn't have been the Captain America movie. It should have been a Black Widow movie. And... Uh, in terms of uh, with these female characters, I think Marvel at the moment are just really now playing catch-up since Wonder Woman really proved that you can have a female-fronted comic book movie and make money on it. So I'm just uh, I'm just waiting to see where DC go next. I mean, they seem to finally be finding their group like Aquaman. They've obviously got talent such as like James Gunn going over there now. So do you think that DC had the potential now to catch up with with the Marvel Universe after so many sort of misfires along the way? Well, I, I think that DC should stop trying to copy Marvel like it felt like they were doing with the, the first half of, of the DCEU. And uh, I feel like they should continue to keep going in what, what it appears to be the direction they're going right now, yeah. especially with like the, the Joker movie and the, uh, the Batman, which seems like it's, it might not necessarily be connected. It's going to be, there's a strong chance that it's going to be, it's it kind of its own thing to where I feel like DC has a lot more of these non interconnected universes uh, where there's a lot of like the kind of the else worlds, but not really the else worlds to where they can have all these different stories featuring different DC characters and not necessarily have them all be interconnected. Uh, I think they could do some of them that that connect to each other because obviously they're the Justice League is is a big part of the DC universe, but I don't think that they all have to be like these interlocking parts. You can have just the Joker movie that's its own thing that has all these characters that aren't connected. You could have a Suicide Squad that's not necessarily directly connected to the previous one that has an entirely new cast of characters. They can even use like the same characters and, and different actors and have it be, you know, a different uh, fragment of the DC universe. Uh, I, I I feel like they, they just need to tell good stories with these characters and people will see the movies. Yeah. And uh, I mean, DC have proven it time and time again with the, the animated universe. So they've proven that they can do it with the, with the animated worlds, but it just seems to be live action. It just, never seems to really sort of click, um, especially when they try to do it on a larger sort of canvas. And But what it's worth, I mean, I enjoyed Suicide Squad. I think I'm in a very small majority there. But <laughs> Kim, I mean, did you say anything in the DC universe that you've enjoyed at all? Or? I mean, I'm also, like, I, I like Suicide Squad also. I thought it was pretty good. Um, but, I mean, like, I, I like Wonder Woman. I really am bored with dc in general like batman versus superman i i i found it immensely boring um it was just really long it was really long and it didn't seem to piece together really well and i think i think that's where like when you're talking about like on a bigger canvas like that i i agree that it doesn't need to be all like interlocking like a bunch of characters and you have to create all these far-fetched stories to kind of pull them all together and um I don't know it it seems like it seems like like 
<laughs> there should be a suggestion on Twitter or something. But just, you know, stick with, you know, each character, have their own stories, have their own little world. Because DC has a lot of good content, but it's just, you know, like, they need to be able to show it better than what they're doing now, I guess. But I, I mean, I haven't seen a lot of it. So I've only seen Batman versus Superman and I've seen Wonder yeah. Woman. And then like everything else, I'm kind of like really behind and I'm not really motivated to go see it because it's not, you know, like I wasn't really motivated by Batman versus Superman. I think that really like kind of like just left a bad taste in my mouth. And now I'm just kind of like, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. After they stopped uh, making stupid decisions, such as, you know, having characters connect because their mothers both share the same name. That might also help their cause. On to obviously tonight we're talking about Hellboy. I mean, this is obviously an indie comic. So before you obviously saw Hellboy, did either of you have any sort of prior knowledge of the comic book? Or was it sort of any knowledge you gained from the film itself? I'm going to go first and say no, because I don't read comic books. Um, I read like random graphic novels so a lot of like the even like anything in any type of like like mcu or dc stuff i don't i don't know anyway so talk about indie stuff it's even even less no but wait did you were you familiar with the character no i i also you know as much as my site focuses on comic book movies i very rarely read actual comic books so i i i didn't really know anything about it although I, I am pretty sure that I saw the movie in theaters because I remember I did have like uh, for the longest time I didn't have a lot of movie posters but I had that Hellboy movie poster like with him just uh, like um, the seeing his back and the with the trench coat and having his head turned to the side and like mm-hmm. the big uh, BPRD logo I had that movie poster in my room for quite a while. Yeah, it's I mean visually. Hellboy is really quite unlike a lot of Cobra movies, especially at the, at the time. And the fact that it's so grounded in practical effects, I think, is also another reason that sort of made it stand out. Because if you compare Hellboy to Blade 2, they seem worlds apart. Um, Hellboy seems very much more of a Del Toro creation than, than Blade. Blade always felt that it was sort of like him coming in and trying to expand someone else's universe. Whereas with Hellboy, it always felt like it was of his uh, university is playing around with, and certainly when we look at some of these characters, which we'll get into in a bit, Mike Manolo look, took a lot of these characters and said to Doctor, you know, just do what you want with them, just create your own cinematic universe for Hellboy, and the comics will be its own thing. And you'll see certain characters throughout the film which are greatly expanded upon, uh, whereas in the comic books they were just sort of like little sideline characters. But with, I mean, just obviously starting with the the original of Hellboy and that opening which I have to say is probably one of my favourite sort of openings with the comic book movie where we're obviously on the the Scottish island where the Nazis are, are in the sort of like last throes of trying to win World War II so they've turned to occult magic to basically try and turn turn the tide and in in doing so, they've uh, somehow managed to recruit Rasputin, the mad monk who's somehow managed to survive being assassinated and is now working for the Nazis. And here they are on uh, Tamagrant Island, where they're, Rasputin's basically trying to open a portal, which is ultimately foiled by the Allied forces. Uh, but in the period while the portal's open, a small, sun-fisted demon who will grow up to be Hellboy uh, comes through. So 
the opening, obviously, scene of Hellboy, I mean, what did we obviously think about? Because I think it's it looks absolutely stunning. I mean, it's got that real sort of B-movie vibe to it. When we look at, like, these leather-clad Nazis and the scientists, which are all, like, in white leather and the, with the goggles on and just the bulky sort of tech that they're using. I mean, what do we obviously think of the opening to uh, Hellboy 1? I mean, I, I really love it. So, you know, vacuum tubes are sexy. <laughs> I, I, I like the, the kind of, you know, steampunk tech with, you know, that that old you know, 40s technology mixed in. And, it, you know, it, it's just, it's all raining and uh, we don't get to see too much of him yet. But, um, oh, and I forgot it, forgot his name now. The the clockwork guy is like, just the look at him is one of my favorite, is one of my favorite characters out of both movies. Yeah. Um, so Cronin, um, he's, again, he's one of those characters who in the comic books, he's just like, he's just a regular scientist character, but in Del Toro's hands, he's like this, since this absolute killing machine, and we see him there, and as you say, he's got the clockwork gas mask, he's got the the blades, and, I mean, Del Toro did this whole extensive back history to him, where he's grows up, and he's part of, like, the Nazi youth, he's like a soprano, and he hits puberty, and he loses his voice, and starts uh, joining sort of, like, the occult factions of the Nazi wing, and in turn becomes addicted to surgery and that's why we he hides under his like gas mask because when we see him without the gas mask he's just like it's like a walking skeleton really he's like got no eyelids and all these really grotesque features yeah um but i agree with you he's he's such a a great villain and there's something about del toro's villains which they never seem to get the credit they they're due like we can look back at chronos with angel we look at this film with uh, Cronin and we can look at like the Commandant in Pan's Labyrinth and you have these standout villains time and time again but they, when we come to list like the greatest cinematic villains they never seem to get a, a mention at all and certainly when it came to see my interest in Hellboy I think it was just a shot of uh, Cronin there and I was like well that's such a cool image just the guy in a clockwork gas mask I knew nothing else about the film but just seeing that image alone made me really want to go and see it. But as a sort of uh, villain, I mean, how does Rasputin sort of stand up as sort of the main villain? Because he's kind of overshadowed in many ways by Cronin, even though Cronin's just sort of a henchman for him. Yeah, and, and Cronin doesn't really even have any lines at all, too. He, he's just this <laughs> presence. He just, uh, he, he can laugh somehow. <laughs> um, but yeah, he's, he's completely mute, yeah. There's no point to that film where I never felt that he wasn't able to get across his his sort of presence. Like when he's introduced and he's there commanding all the the soldiers and stuff, and he's just doing sort of hand gestures. And even when the Nazis like charging, he just like produces the the hidden blades. It, it's just a character that seems to get cooler the more the film goes on. I think the only time I saw sort of like uh, lost it lost something for him was when he changes into his gold suit in the sort of latter half of the film because I prefer the all black sort of mm-hmm. ninja sort of suit but um i mean kim did you have any sort of favorite villains of the first film at all or? oh cronin was definitely like i think that it was just i think that you know he really overshadows rasputin in that sense because it's like what you said like it it, it gave so it gives him such a build-up right we get this kind of building of who he is and we get the appearance and the, i think the really high point was like when we really saw him and like just like the reveal of like his addiction to surgery and the things he's done. And um, I feel that like 
up to this point, Del Toro hasn't really um, gone that grotesque um, in his films, um, and I, I don't. At least I don't think so. I don't. I don't know. Maybe maybe Devil's Backbone is kind of disgusting because um, it had a lot. Of, but I don't feel like it's like at that level where you know you had that kind of like. I don't know. Uh, I don't know what you'd call it. <laughs> he's he's more of a uh, he's more physically like visually he's more obviously uh, yeah because more horrific than when we yeah look because at, usually we see them from afar or we see a lot of blood and we see like a lot of aftermath or the camera cuts out or something like that. But this one like we're starting to see you know kind of like um, I guess with Del Toro I kind of know which shows a little bit more of, like, the really um, odd and creepy things. Um, and, no, I really I, I really like the, the villain. Um, I, I thought it was really good. <laughs> I, I just didn't, like, I didn't feel like Rasputin was a villain. Like, it feel, felt like he really, you know, <laughs> the henchman was better. I don't know. Well, I think part of that is because Rasputin does, he just, he's kind of the mastermind character, but he's right. very soft-spoken and he just kind of it just puts the the pieces in place it's like yeah uh you know after you whenever you watch it a, a few more times you do see that you know he's doing all of these things for a reason like he's building this up so that Hellboy gets to where he wants him to be right. at the end of the movie and the, the it's like just about everything that he does uh, in the latter half of the movie is just moving the pieces towards that end. And, right. but it's something like on a first watch, you don't necessarily completely understand that just because he is kind of just so soft spoken and he's just kind of, you know, kind of gently pushing everything mm -hmm. in the direction that he wants it to, to go. Yeah, right. definitely. Yeah. And he's, He's such a conflict in sort of character. I mean, obviously, when he's introduced, I mean, he's he's complete opposite of when we look at the real life Rasputin. He's got like the slick down hair and that weird bird beard going on. And uh, we look at the Rasputin in this film, and he's like bold. He's like bare chested, sort of like with a flowing uh, sort of gown behind him, and all these sort of like tech match sort of like imagery to to him. And as you said, you you seem to he's gonna be like build up as like this character's gonna go like toe to toe with Hellboy, but as you said, Bowie, he's sort of like the guy who's just there to play the puppet master and to pull mm -hmm. move everyone else into into place so he can orchestrate this this apocalyptic vision he's got. Uh which obviously Hellboy plays this key part of. But at the same time with Rasputin, we've got the introduction of his uh, lover, Isla von uh Hoopstein. Their relationship I think was was also really kind of interesting because uh, when we look at the character of Rasputin, it's supposed to be him introduced after he was assassinated by uh, the Russian nobles. I mean, his actual real-life assassination is pretty damn brutal because, I mean, he was poisoned, beaten, shot, castrated, drowned, and somehow he's survived this. So we know that uh, the relationship between these two characters isn't a physical one, yet there's a real sort of tenderness between them. Um, but anyone who's obviously morbidly curious as to where Vespasian's penis went. You can actually see it in a Russian museum of erotica, which uh, has apparently been there since 2004. And the curator has stated that the mere sight of it can cure impotence. So, <laughs> that's a fun fact for you. <laughs> Do you think that by giving him that romantic angle, it sort of, it adds anything to his character, or 
is it just sort of like another just another sort of element that Del Toro's thrown in there to sort of like humanize the monster? I feel like it's to humanize the monster. I personally didn't think it was that effective. Like it didn't seem to make it didn't seem to make a difference whether it was there or not to me. But I think it also has to do with what we just said that you know I only watched it one time and maybe I would catch more things if I watched it a second time. And with the first one, we obviously have the occultists like the main sort of villain. When we get into the second film, it's more a fantastical element as we've obviously got the the elf lord who's trying to resurrect this golden army, which should also be noticed. It receives the return of everyone's favourite 80s pop star turned actor of sorts, Luke Goss, um, here who plays uh, Prince Nadia. I mean, do you find that, that the prince is actually a, is a much stronger sort of villain in the, in the second film? I mean, how does he sort of compare? Because obviously he's a more fantastical element and the whole tone of the second film is more based in fantasy compared to the first one, which is more based in the occult. I mean, how do the sort of it? How does it weigh up in terms of of the villains of the piece? Well, I I really like the the Prince Nawada because he he has um, you know a a much more I think believable motivation because you know Rasputin's mo- most motivation seems like he just wants to see the world burn. Uh, he just wants, you know, Cthulhu to come over and bring bring eternal darkness and consume the earth for whatever reason. But, you know, uh, Prince Nuada, it's more about, you know, revenge, uh, which is, you know, slightly more uh, relatable where the, the humans have, have more or less broken the treaty between them and the elves. Uh, or at least that's what he feels, and uh, he wants to, you know, take the world back for the elves. Yeah, and we obviously opened that that wonderful stop motion uh, introduction. Where it goes kind of Lord of the Rings territory, where you've got the the elves, which for some reason teamed up with the other fantastical creatures, so like the goblins, the orcs, and they're going up against the forces of men, and they've created obviously this mechanical army. To which is sort of like proves to be like this decisive t- tool to turn the to the war and bring about this this truce between the realms of man and and the fa- the fantastical world. So it's, I mean, he's the problem is when I see Luke Goss in this, and certainly from having seen Blade Two, so similar, they they seem like very similar characters. His his character that we saw in Blade Two and the character we see here. Um, although I do obviously find him a, a much more sort of effective villain because he's he's still more obvious in his motivations, whereas obviously as we said before, Rasputin's kind of he's a bit uh, he's he's too much in the sort of the background to be the sort of villain we want we want from this sort of piece, especially when you're going up against someone as sort of physically based as Hellboy. So, and I mean, is there any sort of like uh, particular elements that you like of? of Hellboy 2 because I mean it's obviously got a lot more fantasy elements compared to the original film which is certainly a lot more grounded so I mean is there any particular elements you like of the second one at all? I actually like the second movie more than the first one so I I liked a lot of the elements like the opening scene with like you know uh, what you're talking about the stop stop motion animation that was like right away I was really grabbed by the movie um, I like like the fantastical elements, like the little tooth fairy creatures. I thought they were fantastic, especially because like 
there were some scenes where it reminded me of like there was one scene in particular that reminded me of my neighbor Totoro, but just in like a really messed up way. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and uh, <Okay. laughs> you know, like when they're on the wall and then they're like scattering in the background through the through the wall cracks. There's like the the dust the dust bunnies and like yeah. uh, my neighbor Totoro has that same scene, but obviously this one is more like you know brutal. <laughs> I really like the tooth fairies. I thought they were super awesome. Um, and obviously like the army was really cool. Um, like a lot a lot of these little things. Um, I, I thought like this was more my speed also, and I kind of like that. You know the a lot of elements like you know. Um, they added the the little love story with uh, with um, with uh, Abraham Sapien, and I thought that was really funny too. And him and him and Hellboy get drunk and then start singing, and it's it's kind of like I like the tone of the film in general. So do I, and, and I I love the you know the difference between the like I'm more of a, of a fantasy fan than. Like, I've, I don't really, I'm not very familiar with, like, the H.P. Lovecraft style mythos. And, and the first one kind of delved a lot more into the H.P. Lovecraft yeah. uh, sort of things. So that that bit was lost on me where I, I'm a lot more familiar with, you know, fantasy creatures like the ones in, in Hellboy 2. So I, I kind of related to it more on that level. Like, one thing that... that always bothered me which we didn't really talk about it in hellboy one is the the audience surrogate character uh in in the first movie was agent myers and he was really the, the weak point for the first movie and they smartly got rid of him in the second movie and yeah. and i found it was interesting watching it this time where i realized that in the second movie they actually made the BPRD, basically the audience surrogates, which on one hand, it felt a little weird considering, you know, the Hellboy has been doing this for like 60 years now. Um, but it, it actually works better because they're, they seem to be mostly new to all of the, this, these fantasy creatures. Like they, they've been based in New York and they had never found the, the troll market before now. And so they're they're being kind of introduced to to this uh, realm of of the mythology, uh, and so we don't have any of these like extraneous characters. We get to focus just on you know the the main characters, you know Hellboy, Liz, uh, Abe, and then and then um, Johann Krauss uh, as the as the new the new character who's also you know, like a fantastical character, and mm-hmm. and he's also voiced by Seth MacFarlane in in the uh, German <laughs> accent. Yeah, I mean, when we obviously talk about the Bureau and this in the second film, they've really got this Men in Black vibe to them, especially when we look at the headquarters and you see different sort of monsters being cast around the background, and Abe Sapien just dismisses it as being always oh, just Friday. Uh, which is kind of funny. To... That, that's funny. That's exactly what I said whenever I was tweeting about it. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and yet it still works. It kind of made me want to see um, them do a BPR, uh, BPRD sort of spin-off. And just if we can't obviously have Del Toro do a Hellboy movie, just let him do this, do the uh, BPRD movie because they've had their own comic book line. So there's definitely enough material there to for him to 
go and just do these do these characters going off and investigating fantastical things and just leave uh, Neil Marshall to screw up the Hellboy character. I mean, every time I look at that new trailer, it just pains me even more. I keep like <laughs> when it came out. I mean, I, I would I didn't like it, and I felt that the Hellboy character looked a little constipated, and the London setting just killed it dead for me. And I was just hearing people like trying to defend it on Facebook. I went back to it today and I was like, no, I just still hate it even more now. So, I mean, <laughs> how do we obviously feel seeing where the Neil Marshall version is going compared to obviously seeing the vision in this film? I mean, do we think that Marshall's on the right track or is he sort of like one of those directors who sort of like got lucky once and has now sort of been living off the residues ever since? I'm not entirely sure because I think it's difficult because I, I know it. There's still only just the one trailer, isn't there? Yeah, there's still just the one trailer at the moment. Which, uh, you know, that's that's kind of surprising considering, it, at least unless things have changed, it's coming out in April. So it's, I would I would think that there should be at least a second trailer by now. But uh, you know, just based on the trailer, which it's it's hard to say how much of that will actually be the focus of the film. Because there is, of course, humor in the Del Toro movie, in the Del Toro movies, but it feels like in the new trailer, they're focusing a lot on the humor, and uh, I, I feel like that's not quite the right direction to go. I mean, certainly with the humor in, in the films, it really sort of evolves over the two films. Like in the first film, it's always Hellboy making sort of wisecracks as a sort of way to alleviate the situation he's being faced, whether he's sort of like having subways dropped on him or he's being swallowed by some Cthulhu type monster. He's always <laughs> got the wisecrack there to sort of like try and play off the fact he's in such such danger. Whereas when we get into the second film it seems a lot the humour is sort of more sort of general and, and different characters are able to sort of play up and, and have those humorous elements. And same when we look at like the troll market, which I think it's sort of like the real standout scene because as you mentioned already probably the fact that these things have always existed yet we're only now discovering them. And I love the idea, much like the vampire clubs in Blade, that they're hidden in plain sight. Like the, the Elven Kingdom's hidden inside just like a, a disused water pumping station. You just like go around a corner and it's all this grandeur and uh, a mysticism. And then with the troll market, it's hidden by some weird hobo lady who's afraid of birds, which is, <laughs> I don't know, why does he have to do an Irish accent? When he's tormenting her with the bird, it just—it just always seemed really weird to me. So I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I—I I, I was like watching this. I'm going. I'm sure. One, I'm sure one of you two is going to have like some amazing like explanation for this. But I was just like so confused even now watching it. So I don't. I don't think like I don't think I went into Hellboy with like a lot of like oh, this is going to be a super deep movie, you know? Oh, there's some great connection, like, you know, in Devil's Backbone that I was like, oh, you know, some deeper meaning, and Del Toro's trying to throw some smoke screen here, and I think Hellboy is fairly, like, straightforward. It is still, you know, um, a comic book adaptation, and it, it, it still has a lot of those elements, and I think, I think what really stands out for the second one is that it not only is, like, the purpose of the villain a little bit like, like more clear and more defined, but also the fact that, you know, there's a big question of Hellboy. Like, the first one was like, well, what makes a man a man? Um, and then I thought that was a great opening. And then, you know, the second one was really about, you know, 
um, the prince questioning him, really challenging him on like, why are you defending these people who don't even care about you? So like, why don't you team up with me? You know, why are you saving the humans? Like what, you know, it's kind of like chaos versus order kind of idea as well. And there's a lot of these things that are thrown in that I, I really like the, I think, questioning uh, a kind of like uh, a super, I guess he's kind of like, I guess you can call him what, a, a supernatural being, a monster? I don't know what you call him. Um, like, just, I guess, humanity for him. I feel like we kind of uh, skipped straight to the Zoke by folks on the villain straight away, and we've not even talked about our hero sort of characters, because they're a, a bit of a mixed bunch thrown together here, and as you said already, we've got the everyday humans, which make up the sort of bureau agents, and then you've got these more fantastical um, elements, such as we've, as you said, we've got the the fishman Ape Sapien. Who I have to question: Is there a link between Ape Sapien and the monster we see in Shape of Water? Or am I, just, <laughs> I asked you that. <laughs> am I just drawing too many sort of links here? I have no idea. I mean, it's. Is it, it's played by the same actor, isn't it, too? It is by the same actor, too. That, that was why I was like, when I first saw it, I was like, hey, that looks so familiar. Who is that? <laughs> and I was thinking about, oh, what is it? Oh, right, Shape of Water. Um, obviously, we've got, you mentioned already, we've got, um, went to call him like a Mysterio catching, but he's really not. He's like a vapor agent. I mean, how do you describe um, Seth MacFarlane's character here? Um Cross. He's, I mean, yeah. he's, he's made of ectoplasm. Yeah, <laughs> he's just, he's like made of, he looks like he's made of steam and has this weird sort of like diving suit uh, with like the Mysterio uh, from Spider-Man dome on top. And as I said, he just sort of he's able to like release himself from the suit and take over objects and unlock things. And he's uh, I really liked him, but at the same time, he's kind of got a stick of his ass for the first half of the film, which. Mm-hmm. Makes him a little harder to warm to, and obviously, and then we've obviously got some players, uh, pyrokinetic member of um, as Liz Sherman, who in the comic mm-hmm. books is just friends with Hellboy, but in here we've got another random romantic angle. I mean, what is it with this film and romantic angles that never seem to work? I wouldn't say Liz and Hellboy doesn't work. I, I just think that you know it it kind of makes sense that they're together because she's a fire starter and he's resistant to fire, so that, it would just make sense that they're the together. Side. The fact yeah. that he can't be set on fire, so that makes him a perfect match for her. He's a stone-fisted <laughs> demon. It would never work. <laughs> Without getting into more private areas of characters in this film, I mean, I just can never see these two characters as having some sort of relationship. Just personality-wise, they're so different. I mean, he's kind of a slob who loves Carrie and cats and candy and TV, and she's kind of like this reclusive character in the first one and by the time we meet in the second one she's sort of more forthcoming she's sort of found herself and has got more about her so she's sort of like got drive and ambition and seems like such a mismatch with Hellboy what's your feelings of just the romantic angles in the in these films I mean did they work for you did they add anything or I mean I I don't think that they had to be there but I I liked how they fit together because I mean they're they're both just you know two misfits trying to find their place in the world and they're they kind of they connect on on that level and and I think that's you know really kind of the the beginning and ending of it and just just based on the fact that they're you know that 
they've been together for so long, and, you know, in this place. And, you know, even though, like, Liz keeps trying, like she said, that she quit, like, seven or 13 times, I believe. And she keeps coming back. It's just, like, one of those relationships. I think it, it kind of feels... Like I don't, I don't feel like they put that much weight to it in the first movie. Uh, I mean, the the one thing that I didn't like about the whole relationship angle was the the and again it, it is back to me disliking the Agent Myers character because they tossed him in and and tried to make it this weird love triangle even though yeah. even though Liz wasn't really interested in him but he was. And it didn't seem like it seemed like he was just trying to play Hellboy's wingman, but then he also seemed like he was interested. And the whole thing was just kind of weird. But you know, with with Liz and Hellboy, I, I thought it, and I really liked the connection with with Abe and Nuala because I, I thought that was, you know, and 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 that also kind of goes into the the whole misfit angle where he Abe finally finds somebody who has this similarity to him. With, with her being able to, you know, sense things through touch. And he's never found that before. And he's like just instantly drawn to her because of it. Yeah. I mean, when he obviously gets to a mentor, it's just the scene in the second one where we've got Hellboy and Abe getting drunk and singing Barry Manilow. And I thought, well, who came up with this? It just seemed like such an odd scene. It's like, yes, for Hellboy but to be But it's so fun. It is so fun. That's, like, my one of my favorite scenes in the film. I thought I thought it was such, like, a change. Like, I think, I think Hellboy in general is a really quirky kind of superhero. So it really works that, like, these these misfits are doing weird things because they're, they're kind of awkward in their own way, and, and it works. And also, I, I like the, the thing that I really like about Hellboy is just as a general concept is they don't really look at themselves as, you know, superheroes. They're just like blue collar workers. They're just doing their job. They're just like, this is their nine to five. Oh, definitely. And when you look, I mean, the Hellboy by his own admittance is a, is a horrible shot. And when we think of a hero, they're always instantly good at any skills that they have. Whereas Hellboy's, he's good at punching things, but he's a horrible shot. That's why he uses a big gun, which uses really big bullets it really compensates for him so when we see like the samaritan in the first film which is just a really awesome awesome weapon and then when we see the big baby in, in the second film which is just an even bigger gun i think it's <laughs> it's supposed to be shaped out of like a church bell or something i think uh Del- Deltor puts in the notes um and the scene where, i mean just the fact he's fighting that that elemental and when he kills the elemental, it's just the, I found, just to join a video game reference, it's like, um, when you play Shadow of the Colossus and you defeat one of the Colossus, it's this idea of destroying this fantastical beast that is never going to be another one. It's just like you're destroying something so fantastical and beautiful and just for this, for this greater cause. And I, I like the, uh, what you're saying, just the blue collar workers just doing a job the best that they can. I mean, would you have liked to see where Del Toro would have expanded? this unit if he had been given a third film or do you think that he would have been best suited just staying with these sort of core characters i think it all depends on the angle they decide to take right i mean del toro has like if del toro was to dive into any of these i feel like he has kind of like a connection to the story so he he would be able to put like a really nice angle to it but 
right now, I don't know. I think I think it's because I've I've seen two Hellboy movies, and I would really love to see a third one by him. Whereas, like, if you're talking like a spinoff for BPRD, I mean, it could work. Uh, I I could see really enjoying a film with like you know I don't know Krause or something because uh, I thought he was a pretty entertaining character in general as well and like the whole whole thing behind that. Well, you know, now Liam Nielsen's essentially killed Men in Black. I mean, there's, there's obviously the potential there for it to happen. Um, I just, as I said, I just feel that it's just so frustrating when I see the end of Hellboy 2. And we obviously get the, you know, spoiler alert if you're not obviously seeing, if you're coming into this blind, but the fact that we're set up, we've obviously got the idea of Liz being pregnant with Hellboy's twins. And just what that potentially, potentially means. I mean... Are these children going to herald in the apocalypse their father was supposed to originally bring, or are they going to play some uh, some part in some larger plot with a new sort of villain? I mean, certainly there is a animated epilogue on the Hellboy Two disc, which shows the revival of both Rasputin and Cronin. Um, Cronin's head gets uh, reanimated and is put into like a giant, larger robot body that reminds me kind of Kane from Robot Robocop Two when he was given a robot body. It's a similar sort of concept but they've just got Cronus his head uh in a jar in the middle of it which is uh it's a really cool scene but it kind of like only sort of plays up the expectation of wow we could really have done something really special if we'd given if it'd been allowed to make a third film and i know ron perlman he's talked on like numerous occasions about how he hoped the bear as much as possible as he puts it to try and get this film made and it's just just never was uh it's only it's never seems it's going to happen i mean with this remake coming out, do you think that there could be any sort of chance that they give Del Toro a chance to remake a third if it falls flat? I seriously doubt it because, yeah. you know, in general, you know, there's one of two situations. Either the movie bombs and then they're not going to put any more money into Hellboy for a long time. Yeah. Or the movie is successful and then that means that the reboot is successful. So they're going to put more money into making sequels of the reboot. And like neither of those options precludes them going back to the Del Toro version of of a third Hellboy. Yeah, so we need to come up with a third option where we set up a patron and create ourselves an alternate dimension where we're, Hellboy was a success and we got our third movie. That's <laughs> that's clearly the way forward here. So head over to our blog, MoviesandTea.wordpress uh, <laughs> uh, dot com. And uh, join our Patreon campaign to fund alternate dimension technology. <laughs> we're nickel and dime it to make it happen. I mean, is there anything, the only other sort of thing that we haven't obviously discussed in terms of this film, and that's in terms of the violence. I mean, Kim, you mentioned already the violence in this film is a lot more obvious than we've seen in the previous films, which obviously had elements of violence to them, but it's always been kind of very subdued or done in a very sort of artistic sort of manner, whether we're licking blood off the bathroom floors or we're seeing bloody grimaces uh, of noses being broken or just like these human characters taking on almost monstrous forms as we saw with like the caretaker in Devil's Backbone and certainly the jars containing the Spinobethia babies in that film as well. In this film, obviously, the violence is a lot more obvious um, and at the same time, it's also kind of hidden in the fact that, and this is the interesting thing, because obviously Del Toro is a self-proclaimed pacifist, so when we see elements of the violence and we see, like, Cronin 
fighting Hellboy and he's like battling him. You see like the stone chips flying off or when we see Hellboy battering the uh, monster in the first room, the gumball machine, we see the gumballs flying out. And these are all supposed to like be elements which represent the violence and gore of the film. Yet at the same time, we've obviously got the this walking skeleton of uh, obviously Cronin without his gas mask. And how do we obviously feel the, the violence and gore is sort of handled in these films? Because certainly it seems to be a higher quota than we've we've seen previously in the Del Toro movie. Yet at the same time, he's using different tricks to hide other elements of gore and violence. Yeah, I've, I've only seen, uh, I think, four Del Toro movies uh, myself. Uh, I've seen the two Hellboy movies, Blade Two, and then Pan's Labyrinth. Um, but, yeah, I, I feel like, you know, this... I think it does push the boundaries of PG-13 in a few ways, but because there is a lot of macabre uh, stuff going on here, because like uh, in the first movie you have him carrying, you know, the top half of a corpse mm-hmm. through a graveyard, um, and but the there is there isn't like a lot of blood because you know, most of the deaths come from the the creatures, and then uh, even though you know, Cronin unmasked is is very grotesque. He's also very, you know, inhuman looking. So it kind of, you know, takes that, gets removed by that that extra step. And then in the second movie, it's it's also, you know, most of the violence is through fantasy creatures and and like the elves. Whenever they die, they turn into stone. And um, like the the biggest bit of kind of gore is early on with the tooth fairies where one of the characters starts getting eaten alive and uh, we get to see him, you know, they've already reduced his, his head to a skull. And then there's like the, I think one of the more gory parts probably is when I think, I think they were like walking on the floor after the, like the tooth fairy before they, the tooth fairies were revealed. And it was kind of like, kind of like gooey blood sort of thing. Um, yeah, think, even though that, they, they said there yeah, was but, supposed to be excrement. Yeah. <laughs> so. How much of these little buggers poo? <laughs> They're only like small little things. How do they produce that much? Well, they, they, um, they do eat 70 people. I think they that said. is true. <laughs> um, the one piece of violence that really sort of makes me feel uneasy is the death of Mr. Wink. The uh, cave troll with the, the the giant flying fist, um, where he gets pulled into the grinder. That still makes me feel uneasy every time I see it. Um, I know it's supposed to be comedic, but it does makes me feel really uncomfortable every time I see that death scene. Uh, but Mr. Wink is actually named after Selma Blair's one-eyed dog, which uh, she confirms in the commentary track as well. So, I've, when you mentioned obviously about the the elves, the fact they turn to stone when they die. I found that a lot less pretentious than when they did the same trick in Twilight. Like when the vampires uh, get injured, they turn to, they, they look like stone being chipped away and it just seemed like so pretentious. But here it seems kind of beautiful when I see that scene. So I'm going to say that I watched Twilight last year and I've already pretty much forgotten all of it. So what you're saying is I don't remember. Yeah. <laughs> it was all a dream. <laughs> it was a really bad dream. 
Have you got anything, any comments you want to make on Twilight while we're talking about Bubble Wheat? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Don't want to wish no. away in. Uh, I'm good. Before we obviously uh, wrap this up, is there anything about these films that we haven't covered already that you want to want to discuss at all? Um, no, I, I think you, you might have brought it up in, you know, talking about Del, Del Toro's earlier films, but I really love how the majority of, of the effects, the creature effects are done practically. Like the uh, the Samael creatures are, I'd say, like 90% practical and only 10% CGI. And, the, you know, the the transition tends to be pretty, pretty seamless hmm. whenever they whenever they make the switch. And then in, in the second movie as well, nearly all of the creatures, except for the, the tooth fairies and the forest and elementals and then portions of the, the golden army are all practical. Like Mr. Wink, that like that's a practical. That's a guy walking around in a suit, and he looks amazing. Uh, and I, I mean, I'm sure that there's um, like CGI uh, enhance enhancements to it, but the the majority of it is just a guy walking around in, in this fantastic looking uh, suit. Yeah, I think in the practical effects element, it really adds to the film to have a practical effect because it gives it such presence and it certainly when you look at practical effects they tend to not date as harshly as when we look at cgi effects i mean you only have to like look at films such as like Mortal combat and lawnmower man to see what was once considered groundbreaking effects is uh now sort of like makes it look like it's made by the sci-fi channel and it's kind of it's kind of heartbreaking when you grow up with these movies and you think oh wow this was like so groundbreaking at the time and now it's you show it to a kid now and it's like oh that looks like garbage like my Xbox can produce better effects than this can, so. And at which point you tell them to get the hell out of your house. <laughs> and then another thing that I wanted to mention, especially in, in Hellboy 2, is some of the fight choreography, especially with uh, Prince Nuada. I mean, a lot of that is gorgeous. I mean, yeah. it's it's extraneous, but it it's it's great to see and and it just, it looks so fantastic to watch and and I think it's it's seen between Nuwata and Hellboy on the gears in in the Golden Army um oh, yeah. you know lair is an amazing fight scene that like nobody ever talks about I think I mean many it's a, there's all the elements of I mean Hellboy itself it never really gets talked about as much as it, as it should do and certainly even the build-up to that final sort of showdown where we've got the agents fighting the, the Golden Army. Mm-hmm. Whose numbers... I don't know why, but in the in the show in the start of the film, they said there was like 40 of these machines. And by the end of the film, there's 70. So I don't know where these extra ones have come from. But just the scene with them like battling and they're destroying these monsters, these uh, Mikhail monsters, and then they step back and they just repair themselves. I thought it was just such a really great scene. And you just seeing how each of the agents are utilizing their, their particular skills to yeah. sort of destroy the monsters. Like Hellboy's obviously using his gun, he's using his fist, and um, old Fogboy is able to take over the body and, and just like go rampaging as one of these machines, which is also really cool to see. But the actual uh, fight choreography, I mean, we owe a large debt to uh, the Jackie Chan stunt team. I mean, I mean, he actually trained for like six to eight months just to do the spear work in that film. And, I remember seeing the film when it first came out and just being absolutely blown away by the fact that, oh, here's this 80s pop star and he can really 
move that spear around. Um, <laughs> certainly watching it now this time and looking at the scene a bit more closely and you see the elements where obviously you've got the CGI enhancements such as like when he's doing the flips, but just the how he welds it. There's a real sort of confidence there, which actually obviously like pays off just putting the time and effort into training someone to do, to do fight choreography rather than just relying on stunt people to do all the sort of fight scenes. And it really sort of pays off in spades here, much like the use of practical effects. And I think that's something about Del Toro, the fact that he's not a lazy filmmaker. He will go the extra mile to give films his presence and to create that film protein rather than uh, sort of the eye candy that other directors sort of aim for. But, um, um, further watch, I mean, if you like Hellboy, where'd you sort of go from here? I mean, but wait, I mean, you obviously are a comic book expert. What do you sort of pair with Hellboy? Or is there anything? Oh, well, I mean, I, I would kind of cheat a little bit because uh, there there were two animated Hellboy movies. Yeah. And um, and I think they're both pretty great. And I, I think it's it's also great just to look at the four of them as a whole because each movie does kind of examine a different... Uh, country's mythology like you know the the first one is all about the hp lovecraft the, the second one is all about these you know more like the uh, irish or scottish folklore uh elements and then there's um blood and iron which is like the uh, uh vampire mythology and uh like uh uh hecate i think and uh you know the I forget her name, but the, the the countess that's like bathed in blood, like that version oh, of the yeah, mythology. Um, Elizabeth Bathory, I believe it is. Yeah, Bathory. Yeah. Um, and then the uh, Sword of Storms is all about you know Japanese folklore, and it, it goes into the creatures in in Japanese mythology. And all four of them are are great in their own right, and it it's great for them to just you know, explore these different sections of mythology with the, the, the Hellboy team, the BPRD being kind of the, the this core that's, that connects them all. And uh, and also, like, in, in both the animated movies, all the voice actors return. Other than, um, you know, we also didn't talk about, in the first movie, Abe Sapien was performed by Doug Jones, but he was voiced by David Hyde Pierce. And then uh, all the other ones, he was then voiced by Doug Jones in, in the second movie and both the animated movies. Yeah. I mean, do you sort of lean more towards Doug Jones in the voice or David Hyde Pierce doing the voice? Because I, I, it was only this time I obviously noticed the fact it's not David Hyde Pierce doing the voice, it was actually uh, Doug Jones doing the voice as Aid Sabian this time. I mean, did you have a sort of preference you two with uh, which voice you preferred? I did notice a slight difference this time. They they both, I think they both felt like the same character, but I do slightly prefer David Hyde Pierce's uh, voice. But I think Doug Jones does, you know, a very good job of capturing the essence of the character without trying to overly mimic uh, David Hyde Pierce's voice. Okay, Kim, did you have a preference of uh, which English guy you prefer to have? <laughs> They all sound the same to me. Um, <laughs> just, just kidding. Uh, oh, yeah, that's why I'm treating every Cockney accent going every time the English are mentioned on podcasts. So. <laughs> um, no, I 
I actually like Doug Jones a lot. Um, so I thought he, I don't know. I, I thought I didn't really mind both of them. I, I like the character in general, but I, I would say I, I kind of like the second one. So I like Doug Jones. Um, I thought he did a really good job. Awesome. And is there any films that you want to, uh, you would pair with Hellboy as a sort of fair viewing experience? Um, mine, I would actually go out of, um, I would go away from the superhero, um, okay. genre. And, uh, I, since I talked about it, I'm going to use it as a further viewing. So like, um, the shape of water, uh, for obvious reasons that I, I think Abe Sapien is very reminiscent of, you know, the, the shape, <laughs> Um, the water creature. I don't, I don't know what you call it anymore. Um, and um, the second thing is, uh, as I was watching the film, I actually, when I saw the tooth fairy uh, creatures, it reminded me of this 2016 short that I saw, which is called um, K-Nut, which is about um, tooth fairies, but uh, represented as a mouse um, who takes teeth as like a possessive aspect. So it's kind of like, a, it's a horror short. Uh, but it's a really, uh, it's a really nice angle, like, um, sinister angle on kind of like the tooth fairy myth sort of thing. Cool. Um, I mean, for myself, I mean, if you want more sort of alternate Nazi, uh, occult, uh, worship, I mean, check out Frankenstein's army, lots of really great practical effects there. Um, again, with, uh, you can look at the Del Toro 2010 uh, produced Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, uh, which is based on the ABC made-for-TV movie of the same name from 1973. Um, again, featuring two fairies. Mm. And um, the last one, if we're obviously talking about old town that takes on superheroes, then that would be Watchmen. Um, while Watchmen is obviously a lot more darker and uh, more serious in tone, being an Alan Moore property, I think that it sort of taps into that idea of what if normal people were just sort of superheroes and how that was sort of playing into the greatest scheme. And I think Watchmen itself is still one of the greatest comic books of all time. And the film, as much as there are purists out there who want to dismiss it, I think it did an absolutely fantastic job. Whereas like Sin City did of adapting that property. Um, I think Watchmen, the film, is, uh, is just a really great job of adapting what is already a really heavy material to begin with. So, But were you a fan of Watchmen or... Yeah, I, I I still quite enjoy Watchmen as a movie. I know that, you know, I feel like there's been kind of a, a backlash against Zack Snyder for the DCEU, but I I still think that, you know, Watchmen is great. And, and I watched the movie before reading the graphic novel, and I I think it, it works as uh, an entry point uh, to get people to kind of bring the, the graphic novel back into the limelight and and of course since then it's the uh the comics have expanded uh they brought the comics back i, I haven't heard about the, the overall quality of of uh that the before watchmen and and all that other stuff but uh, the movie itself uh, i i do enjoy yeah the the before watchmen's not great <laughs> many because it's not alan moore's and got nothing to do with it it's it's kind of like uh you kind of get the feeling feeling that alan moore's uh got in there the, the episode of the simpsons where he's um 
where Millhouse tries to give him the Watchmen Babies DVD to sign. I think Watchmen, the film, I really enjoy it. The only thing I don't like about it is the fact that they try to do a sex scene to Ali Yuya, which is never going to work. Thank you, Steve Bubbleweed, for coming and joining us on this episode and uh, sharing your comic book knowledge with us. It's been uh, great having you on. And uh, if people obviously want to uh, come and check out your vast sort of archive of comic book reviews, where's the best place to uh, come and find you? Well, they can go to my site at flightstightsandmovienights.com and they can follow me on Twitter where I'm at Bubbleweed, where uh, I tend to, especially the the bad superhero movies and the ones that I've seen before, I, I tend to live tweet them whenever I can. I, I just uh, watched a, I, I wouldn't even call it a superhero movie. It was kind of a uh, a parody of like a private eye um teen pop star private eye a movie called sexina and that that was hilariously <laughs> awful <laughs> awesome um well thank you again for obviously it's uh, been great having you on um obviously for ourselves if uh, you want to check out the whole archive you can do it movies in tea uh, podcast.wordpress.com uh, you can also follow us on facebook and twitter and uh, if you haven't done already, please do uh, write us a review and uh, leave us a rating. If you listen to us on iTunes or Stitcher or Podomatic or wherever you happen to be, Lewis, it really does help us get the show uh, rating up there and uh, help more people obviously discover the show and uh, help us continue to do what we're doing. Um, but, Kim, where do we go from here? I mean, obviously, we've looked at the Hellboy and where does uh, the Del Toro career path take us next? We're heading a little bit backwards uh, to 2006, and we're checking out Pan's Labyrinth. Um, so that's obviously the next episode. Uh, but and to them, thank you uh, again to uh, Bob Whip for joining us as our special guest host tonight, and uh, thank you, of course, to Kim. It's always great to be here. <laughs> and uh, until next time, uh, wishing you all a very good night. Just can't.